last week I was I was like writing up the bat the copy for the back cover of the book and sent it off to the printer and it was like and sending it to my friend in, in Vernon who's an amazing editor like does this look okay does this look good because I'm the kind of person who will work on something forever and every time I see it I want to change something you know it's never great What Were You Thinking, the podcast that goes beyond the pages of the books we love. I'm your host, Dana Goldstein, and I invite you to join me as we ask authors to share the story behind their stories. Today, I'm talking with Julie Van Rosendahl. Now, if you live in Calgary, You probably have heard this name because Julie is frequently on CBC Radio, on CBC Television. She writes for the Globe and Mail. She's kind of a celebrity here in YYC, but she's the most uncelebrity celebrity you're ever going to meet. And she's probably cringing that I even refer to her as a celebrity. I've interviewed Julie a number of times over the years. She's always fun and engaging and extremely candid about anything I ever want to discuss with her. And in this episode, we talk about the legacy of cookbooks and dirty food and diet culture and self-publishing and what happens when the self-publishing process goes sideways. And we talk about, of course, Buttergate. If you know, you know. We touch on street potatoes and food security, a cause that Julie is extremely passionate about. So enough from me. Let's get right into this episode with cookbook author, foodie, and all-around fantastic, generous person, Julie Van Rosendahl. Can we start with what are you working on now? You got a new cookbook coming. Uh, Can we talk about it? I do. Um, Yeah. So, so yeah, I've been working on a cookbook. It was tricky last year, obviously, in all areas of life and the world. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't get a cookbook out last year. And so I wanted to get one out this fall. Uh, another small format, single subject book, uh, self-published. And um, I had been working on a butter book because after Buttergate. There'll be more on Buttergate later in this episode. So stay tuned because you're not going to want to miss the story of how Canadians went crazy when the butter wasn't softening as it normally does. Everyone was like, you should write a butter book. And I was like, that's perfect. It's a perfect subject for a book. But then things just started going sideways. It was strange. Sort of this series of events and recipes weren't working and things. And finally, I was like, okay, I'm going to look at my horoscope. I've been become weirdly addicted to reading my horoscope this pandemic, which is very unlike me. But a few times it's been like really weirdly bang on. So then I got a little bit addicted to it. So I was like, okay. Of course, I asked Julie where she gets her horoscope. She gets them from Phil Booth, and I'll post a link to his website in the show notes. I'm going to look at my horoscope, whatever it tells me to do about this book, I'm going to do. And it said, if you're not 100% sure that a project will work, put it aside until you are. And it was like, no way like it was so so specific so I was like okay I'm gonna put that aside but then I was kind of bummed out that I didn't have a book and 
I started thinking about, you know, how people are, are reacting to the pandemic in the kitchen and obviously baking a lot, um, nurturing each other with food. Uh, and I had a cookie bakery in the nineties, which I don't really talk about very often. I don't know why I just don't. And, and so a lot of people don't realize that. Julie's bakery in Calgary was called one smart cookie and her first cookbook also had that same name. I also discovered that she won the Stampede Chili Cook-Off at 12 years of age. She neglected to tell me about that. And my first book was a cookie book that came out in 1999, the Christmas of 1999. And uh, and I self-published that one. I made it in a basement in Saskatoon, my friend's basement. Um, and uh, so I was like, you know what? Maybe people just need a cookie book. And that's something that I could pull together because I, you know, I have all these cookie recipes that it's not like I have to start from scratch and test all these, you know, new things. And, uh, and so it's a cookie book, but then I just, I don't know. I had a, I had a rough summer. I know everyone did, but I, I just dragged my feet. It's, it's strange how, I don't know if you notice this as a creative person, do you procrastinate on the big projects that you're most excited about? Um, yes. So I can tell by your yeah, face. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, is That's it procrastination or is it like that? Have I convinced myself that it's a creative break that I need or is it procrastination? Yeah, I don't know. I, I find every day I'm like, okay, I'm just going to finish this and this and answer these emails and do this little thing and do this and that, and then I'll get to it. And then I never get to it. Right. So these big projects that I really want to do end up getting backburnered. And so over the summer, like I was tired, I kind of slacked off a bit. And then, you know, in the, in the print media world, fall is, is big, right? So over the summer, all of a sudden it's like, oh no, we have all these big spreads of these big stories that need to be come out in the fall and summer is when they get done. So I kind of started working on them and, which is all to say, I, I dragged my heels a lot on it, but I managed to pull it together. And, uh, and so eventually what I did is I, I wrote a big check to the printer and was like, okay, well now I have to do it because I'm in the print queue and I have given them a lot of money. Uh, and so I have to do it. So I kind of forced myself to finish it. I scrambled it together last week and uploaded, man, it's so bad when I think about how traditional publishing works and the, how much lead time there is you know and you submit your manuscript to the publisher like a year before it ultimately comes out you know and then the editing and the layout and the back and forth and the the pre-press and the the proofing and then it typically with larger publishers gets shipped overseas which takes you know six months to to go back and forth print and ship back especially now and uh, and i i get my books printed in canada which makes it you know shorter but uh, last week I was, I was like writing up the bat, the copy for the back cover of the book and sent it off to the printer. And it was like, and sending it to my friend in, in Vernon, who's an amazing editor, like, does this look okay? Does this look good? Because I'm the kind of person who will work on something forever. And every time I see it, I want to change something. You know, it's never great. This is the plight of writers. We never feel like we are truly done with whatever it is we are writing or putting together draft after draft after draft there's always something that we can fix and always something that we want to change and at some point we just need to acknowledge that we've done the best that we can 
kind of like building a successful marriage and raising your children. So it's off, but I haven't really talked about it because it doesn't seem real. And also I'm like, I have that kind of feeling of dread, like it's going to be terrible. As you know, <laughs> not like, yay, the book is done. It's like, oh, I should have done a better job, which is just me. It's just me. But anyway, hey, it'll excuse me. Yeah. How many cookbooks have you written or been a part of writing? Uh, this will be number 12. So at what point <laughs> do you have the confidence that you've, you've done great on a cookbook? I have done so many cookbooks and I still, uh, yeah, it's terrible. I still get cringy. I still think, oh, I could, that could be better. I could have done that better. And, uh, you think I'd learn by now, but you know, I don't think I'm going to learn. <laughs> I think this is just who I am at this point. We never have the opportunity to get cocky about it, right? Because we're, we're not the end users. We are very conscious of our readers and our end users mm-hmm. and the people in the kitchens making the things and it has to work for them, not for us. Oh, 100%. And, you know, honestly, I've never, I've never been cocky about my books. It's always seemed a little bit ridiculous. And especially this year, the last two years, and, and even before the pandemic, it seemed... It seems silly to me that I, you know, as an author would write a book and compile these recipes and put it out and, and people acted like it was such a massive accomplishment and I would have parties, (laughs) you know, (laughs) sorry, I don't mean to, I don't mean to, you know, make light of people who wrote books because I know you have written books and are Mm -hmm. writing books and it's a big thing, but also it even seems silly before the pandemic that I would get to have a party to celebrate the work that I did when other people do work every day and they don't have parties for themselves to celebrate it. So, you know, I try not to take myself too seriously. It's like, it's just a cookbook, right? And that's ultimately, I guess, what got me to finish it and get it out the door is like, it's just a, it's just a collection of recipes. And I, you know, hopefully people will have it on their shelves and it, it, it makes me feel good to think that people might you know, buy it and use it and, and get it, might get all dirty from use in the kitchen. Yeah. The, you know, you say like get dirt, get your cookbooks dirty in the kitchen. And I, I love that. Like this is a, it's a silly thing. And maybe I'm the only one who feels this way, but when I open up a cookbook that I poached for my grandmother and there's like schmutz on the pages, it's, it's like, I'm there with her and it's like a legacy that we leave. Yeah in in True. the splatters and the stains and the tears and all those things and I think cookbooks are one of those family heirlooms that often get overlooked and end up on the shelves at Valley Village totally <laughs> totally when my grandmother uh died oh a long time ago now uh you know there's they my grandparents had an amazing house with all these antiques and wonderful things and I just wanted her measuring cups you know and her recipe boxes right and and you're right like the handwritten like that's the connection to them the handwritten recipes the the batter splatters that you know that she left there it's like and and food is such a connector right we feel connected to people when we cook for them when people cook for us you know when, when we tell the story of whose recipe this is that it it feels different. One of the most rewarding projects I ever worked on was creating a 
cookbook for a woman who had her grandmother's coil-bound notebooks filled with handwritten recipes. I scanned the recipes, preserving all the drips and splatters and smears, and then interviewed her so that we could get the stories behind the recipes. And we got stories from her and her family and her uh, grandmother's remaining siblings. And honestly, it was the most beautiful, emotional project that I ever worked on. It's a great idea for a Mother's Day gift. How did Dirty Food come about? Like, when did you start working on it? And when did the idea whisper in your ear to do Dirty Food? Oh, it seems so long ago now. So I was, uh, I was in a chapters actually, and I saw yet another cookbook called, uh, coming clean or something about clean eating. I think it was Gwyneth Paltrow's book coming, coming clean, something along those lines. Anyway, there's a ton of clean eating cookbooks that just drove me bonkers because, you know, when you talk about clean food, it stands to reason there's also dirty food, right? And and there's the, the opposite must exist. And it's not, you're not talking about the cupcake or the, you know, the, the food itself. You're talking about the person eating it, right? So it's a kind of food shaming, 100%, which I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about. And, uh, and so I tweeted a picture of it. I tweeted, we should start a dirty food movement or something like that, you know, who's with me? And the response was like, yes, you know, like thousands of people I'm in, what do we do? And so I had been wanting to go back to self-publishing. Uh, I've worked with a lot of publishers and they're, it's great. It's a great way to, you know, to put out books, but I like the idea of having, you know, creative control, being able to sort of do everything myself. I do my own photography already. And, and I always like this, the idea of doing small, smaller books with a lower price point. I could just do what I wanted and be like, I'm going to do this totally bizarre subject, like, like dirty food. So I, it was the first book, uh, that I, that I did in this series. And I went to my designer, uh, you know, who's, who put together the layout and everything. And he <laughs> was great. He was like, okay, so what's dirty food? <laughs> what, how, like, what do you mean by dirty food? And, and that was tricky to, you know, conceptualize as well. Right. Because I didn't want it to be all, you know, fried food and extreme burgers and things, because that sort of reinforces the idea that some food is bad and some food is virtuous. And so ultimately what I went with was a collection of things that were like sticky and messy, like sticky buns and and sounded messy, like mud pie and, you know, dirty rice and just to have fun with it, like just to poke fun at this concept of clean eating so that people think about it and realize how ridiculous it is. We, we think that we're beyond diet culture, like diets are so passe mm-hmm. they're so, you know, 1990s. They're not, we've just rebranded it as wellness. And we, uh, you know, have these dietary regimes and, you know, pre-pandemic, a third of Canadians were, had like a strict set of rules that they followed, whether it was, you know, paleo or whole 30 or veganism or vegetarian, like whatever a lot of them are diets. A lot of them are are diets. They're just rebranded. Right. Anyway. So I think we, you know, we think we're above it, but we're not really (laughs) above it. And clean eating is like, it's just another one of those, uh, you know, perpetuated by Instagram and TikTok. And the hashtag has been used like 
hundreds of millions of times. So, so that's what dirty food was all about. And it was fun. And, but it was tricky because as a cookbook, you know, usually cookbooks are, you know, there's a solution to, to a problem, right? There's how to get dinner on the table or how to make sourdough bread or how to use your instant pot. And this was like, people had to understand the concept to, to buy it. They're not going to just see it on the store shelf and be like, oh, dirty food. I think I'll buy this. They kind of had to be, had to be explained. So there's a study out there that says people typically only use three recipes per cookbook. And you know what? That's kind of true when I think about it. But let me just say, of all the recipes that I have tried to make in dirty food, and I have made more than three, my favorite, favorite, favorite is trashy cookies. They're chocolate chip cookies with a bunch of other things in them. Whatever you got. You got pretzel bits hanging around in the bag, little bits of crackers, sprinkles you figure you're never going to use again. Dump them in. Delicious cookie. And it's like a treasure hunt with every bite. How was the re-entry into self-publishing? How did it go? What challenges um, did you face? It has changed quite a bit since 1999 when I self-published my first book. And, you know, we could only afford to do 16 pages of color, you know, and now everything's just full color and that's the way it is. It, the industry has changed hugely with Amazon and Costco driving most book sales. So people expect a discount, you know, and even chapters has changed a lot on, you know, the, the discounts that they demand of their publishers. It's a tricky industry, like the margins are slim. And uh, so a few dollars per book, these were about 250 per book. I got a, an exposed spine that cost a little bit more. Um, I also created a little bit of drama because people thought it was damaged. Let's, and Let's talk about that. So tell me about the spine and the fallout. So most paperback books have what's called perfect binding, perfect bound. And that's just sort of the, the paper covering the glue uh, that holds all the, the, the signatures, the little packages of paper together. And I really wanted it to stand out for one thing, uh, but I also really wanted it to lay flat, especially as a small book, you know, they're hard to use in the kitchen when you can't, you can't keep it open. And so I had seen some, some larger, a few books that had an exposed spine so you could see the glue and you could see the signatures and the stitching and it looked really cool. And so we, we played around with it in a small format to see if it would lay flat and it does, it lays flat, it's beautiful. I love it. And plus the, the exposed spine looks different on the shelf. You can't, there's no title, you can't print on it, right? but it looks different. So I thought it would stand out for people who had it on their shelf instead of getting lost as a, as a small hundred page book. So, so anyway, it's, it's got glue. The first print run, they put way too much glue on. Uh, they forgot to take off the printing markers on the, that's, on the back of each bundle right. of pages because it's usually covered up by the spine. So they just didn't think to take it off. So it looked really messy and people thought that it was damaged. So in the, in a bookstore, if a book is damaged, they tear off the cover and send it back. Right. So some bookstores thought it was damaged. A lot of people sent me photos. Oh, I got your book and it's damaged. One lady like who lived on a farm, drove back to chapters for like an hour and a half or something and then oh she sent me the angriest email on christmas eve last year 
I don't know why I was checking my email on Christmas Eve, but I was on my phone. And uh, oh, this scathing shame on you for making such an ugly book. I bought it for my niece and it's so terrible. And I drove all the way back because I thought it was damaged and it's not damaged. <laughs> I was like, well, thanks for buying it. If your niece follows me, she'll know that that's what it's supposed to look like. And but yet created a lot of scandals. So the second print run, uh, I got them to use a colored thread so that it, so it's an orange thread. So it looks more intentional, looks like a design feature. And then the next book, they're going to use blue thread that will sort of distinguish it from the first one. So hopefully people will catch on by now and think, oh, that looks cool instead of, oh, that's damaged. Did you ever consider changing it so that it had a covered spine? I did consider whether maybe this is just a bad idea and we considered actually my distributor who was in Kelowna was like no this is not good you have to cover it up with a you know like a like a an outer cover like a paper cover so I looked at getting paper covers printed and then having to put them all on so that it wrapped around and it was this huge expense and they would have got damaged in shipping right the paper covers and and so we sort of went back and forth about it. I didn't want to go back to, to Perfect Bound because I thought that would make the book, I thought it would make it look sort of cheap at this size and it wouldn't lay flat, right? So I was really adamant that I wanted to stay with the, the <laughs> exposed spine. So we went, you know, through the getting quotes for the paper covers and it was, you know, it was almost as expensive as the books to get just the paper covers done. And then they would have to be folded and shipped and we would have to put them on all the books. So I was oh. like, forget it. It's staying the way it is. And yeah, and it's fine. Right. So I just put it, I put it in the specs, exposed spine, I put it in the, you know, note to the booksellers, whether they see it or not, read it or not is another thing, but, uh, but hopefully, you know, people will get to know it. The more I put out, the more they'll realize that it's supposed to be like that. Right. Okay, Buttergate. Oh, oh. <laughs> You know, I, I've known you for a while and I'm, I am sure you did not anticipate the attention and exposure that this story would get. I remember where I was. I kind of feel like it might be one of those stories where we remember where we were when we heard about Buttergate or we read that story wow. about Buttergate. Yeah. So shall I give it a shall I give a rundown? Yes. As as you know, people had been talking about butter being firmer at room temperature. And it kept coming up. Someone at CBC said, Oh, someone asked you on Twitter or on email or you know, what's going on with the butter? And I was like, I don't know. And and so then started noticing it you know people were tweeting why why is my butter so hard and I was noticing it as a food writer and a a teacher of cooking I did a lot of pie classes at the cookbook company and noticed that the butter at room temperature was the right texture to make pastry like it was firm enough to work into the pastry it didn't need to be fridge cold and it was more malleable at room temperature but that had never happened before right like you always use butter from the fridge when you're making pastry. So that was odd. And then when I was writing recipes, I was like, I used to put butter at room temperature, but it wasn't soft enough at room temperature. So I was starting to rethink, like, do I put butter softened or butter at room temperature? So I'd been paying attention to it for, for a while. And then, yeah, at, at one point I was like, okay, there's, 
there's something going on. I'm going to dig into this. So I, I got all these butters and I had them all like spread out all over my counter. And I've been, this has been like through the seasons, right? So this happened in the middle of winter, right? Right. So, How many butters did you have at one time? Oh, I don't know, like 10 <laughs> butters. And like, I had fancy European butters and, you know, butters from across Canada and the grocery store butters and so I was just walking around, touching them, like poking them with my finger and, you know, Instagramming them and stuff. But I, you know, I really started just to think about what would make it a different texture. What made the most sense in my mind was that there, it was a change in the saturated fat content, right? The fatty acid profile was higher in saturated fat. What would cause that to happen? A change in diet, right? It's, it's really exciting that it all worked out. <laughs> like, I yeah. believe that. So this was all early February and it was like the, the, uh, um, it was the polar vortex. So I kind of hunkered down one weekend and I was posting on Instagram and anyway, so people on Instagram were set, were like, you know, sending me their theories and things or not theory, just sending pictures of their own better mostly. But, but one person who I didn't know said, you know, I worked in um, feed logistics for a long time, and there's a lot of supply chain disruptions right now, and that might have something to do with it, especially uh, in the the imports like molasses and palm fats. And I was like, palm fats? Like what? What? And so I started researching palm fats uh, in dairy feed, and yeah, it's a thing. Palm fat supplements are a thing so you know and so I had sort of come across this and I didn't want to post it right away because I didn't I it's such a huge industry you know it's like a 20 billion dollar industry in Canada and it's so complex and so I really wanted to do my due diligence and and research and talk to as many people as I could so I started sort of interviewing farmers and industry people and uh nutritionists, you know, animal nutritionists and the people who produce these supplements and, and so many people, um, to make sure that I got everything right, you know, and someone had used the hashtag buttergate on my initial post that was like, something's going on, but you know, I never used it because it, it just didn't seem, it seemed like I, it was disrespectful to the industry to be using it. And I wasn't looking for, media attention for it right like I think it's I wanted to approach it from let's be curious about how our food is made and produced right and and the pressures that our farmers are under to meet quota and we're baking more and you know there's there are a lot of factors and and the the agriculture industry has changed so so I never used the hashtag but a lot of people use the hashtag and it exploded like it was it was bonkers and it uh on a global scale it was jimmy fallon made a joke about it like it was uh yeah it really blew up and i think partly is everyone was just tired of covid right everyone was tired of hearing about pandemic and the media just jumps on another story it was something that everyone could relate to everyone it was a talker people talked about it people could look in their kitchens and be like yeah yeah and uh how many media outlets ended up picking it up all of them remember like across the globe all of them oh like literally across the globe like it was I did radio in Melbourne and the New York Times and like every out everywhere it was bonkers my friends in Paris were sending me shots someone 
like got some image or some video found me on TV uh, online. And, and so there was footage of me on the news in Paris cooking in my kitchen, right? That they had found <laughs> online. I was just like, like it was insane. If you Google Buttergate, you're going to come across stories from the BBC, from Al Jazeera, from media outlets all over Canada, on the Indian Express, from various blogs and commentaries and universities, and yes, the New York Times. I'll post a link to the Globe and Mail article in the show notes. It's a lengthy article, but worth the read. You will be stunned by what you don't know about butter. But it was really interesting how the majority of the news stories were just regurgitations of other news stories. Like they were just sort of picking up, because it, it moves so fast, right? And everyone wants to jump on it right away. So, so many news stories didn't talk to me at all. The vast majority of them didn't talk to me. Like The Economist, oh boy, the story came out actually quite late. And all kinds of facts were wrong. Like they called me a, a pastry chef, and but they never talked to me about it. It was really bizarre. The New York Times was great. They were fantastic. Obviously, the New York Times. Obviously. Yes. Well, you made the print New York Times. Right. Well, that's all nice and good, but (laughs) I don't think you've made it until you are a clue on Jeopardy. Oh, oh, you're right. (laughs) I will will pee my pants if if and when that does happen. Yeah. So it was actually quite amazing how fast the, uh, the industry responded and the dairy farmers of Canada asked farmers to stop using the supplements and um, dairy farmers in Quebec, which is our largest dairy producer in Canada asked their farmers to stop using the supplements. It's just, and, and I've heard from so many people that their butter is way softer. I mean, over the summer, it just, it just is softer, even if you have a temperature regulated house. What is the deal with the urban potatoes? Like the street potatoes? Yes. Yeah. Well, so Jan Arden, my friend Jan Arden, she had some surplus seed potatoes that she got from Rose Cousins, who is a, um, a musician out in PEI. PEI seed potatoes. She had all these extra potatoes. I had already planted potato- potatoes. She had already planted a bunch of potatoes. She was like, do you need any more potatoes? <laughs> like, I don't think so. But there are all these planters in my neighborhood, these big old cement planters that never get planted. There's sort of newer planters at the city plants every year. And then a few that just, they stay empty all the time. And uh, so I said, oh, we should go plant them in, in the empty planters. She was like, cool, I'll come help you. So we went and we just planted them in <laughs> all the planters. And uh, yeah, I've been harvesting them and there's a lot of potatoes in there. I didn't know if people would, you know, catch on and go and dig them up themselves, but the plants themselves are, are nice. Have people been walking by and looking and thinking, oh, those are potatoes. Can I have some? Well, yeah, not many people recognize them. Even some gardeners who walked by who I started talking to were like, oh, those are potatoes. I thought they were weeds. So I put signs in them that said, potatoes, not weeds. Because one planter got dug up, that got completely dug up. And I think somebody must have thought that they were weeds. 
nothing else is planted there. It's just empty. One of the things I love about Julie is how much she truly cares for her community and for the people within it. So it's not surprising to me that her and Jan would plant potatoes that are free for the taking for anyone who needs them. It was the sense of caring and community that propelled her into action at the beginning of the pandemic when people in the food community who she has built relationships with were asking her for help and guidance with how to deal with all this surplus food that they had in their fridges that wasn't going to be used because restaurants were closed. She worked her magic, reaching out to other restaurants, to catering companies, and reaching out to local nonprofits to build a bridge that would enable this food to get into the hands of the people who really needed it. But the pandemic really brought into focus what's most important about food. And I've always, you know, been an advocate for food access. You know, we have the luxury of buying cookbooks and wanting to make, you know, cinnamon buns or cook Thanksgiving dinners, you know, all these things. So many people don't have that, that luxury, right? So yeah, I think, so cooking skills, I think contribute greatly to, to food insecurity, but also, you know, oh, it's such a big, such a big issue. You advocate for making lunches available to all students in school oh, all the time. Boy. How is that, how, is that even a reality? I know they do it in the United States and it's brilliant. It's expensive, but it's brilliant because that just levels the playing field for every kid and yeah. no kid will be without a meal and no kid will feel like they're being singled separated. out, singled out. Yes, for sure. And that's a huge part of it. Uh, and yeah, so the U S has national school lunch program and a lot of people here advocate for a national school lunch program. I have my doubts that it will ever happen because the, you know, schools, the infrastructure would be so expensive to put kitchens in every school. High schools typically have cafeterias and foods programs. Uh, elementary and junior high schools don't. I think if that did happen, it's a long way away to get that that going. So in the meantime, there are organizations that that do emergency lunches. You know, and I've talked to a lot of adults who were kids who relied on those lunch programs who, like you said, were they said they would rather go hungry than be identified. So I think the dignity piece is such a big part of it. Uh, I have a lot of ideas about how to more sustainably provide lunches to to everyone who needs them. But long term, I think I think a huge part of the solution is tapping into the hospitality industry, who has been devastated by this pandemic. Anyway, I think one solution for school lunches, if it was a, a company like a restaurant that was underutilized or a catering business, and we partnered these restaurants or catering businesses with schools in their neighborhoods, because that creating that community, right, having a restaurant down the street, not only does it provide more culturally diverse food choices, you're not getting a, a bag with a bologna sandwich in it every day, uh, it helps develop those relationships, right? If you have that, that mom and pop restaurant feeding the kids at the school, maybe one day a week or maybe every day of the week. And, and if it was something that was offered to all parents out of school, right? $5 a day, I as a parent would 
be thrilled to pay $5 a day. (laughs) Yeah. Have my kid get a lunch, especially if I knew it was supporting the, the other kids. Right. And so then you could have some, uh, be subsidized. Some are not, are covered by, uh, the school or the other parents. Um, but no, none of the kids know who's, who has paid for their lunches. Right. And that's such a big part of it is, you know, the kids who rely on emergency lunches, not wanting to be identified as such. And I think that's a sort of a more sustainable way to feed kids across the board. You know, it could be every town, every school district could, could adopt this. There are already platforms for, you know, fun lunch days and, you know, that parents can order meals on. So, so it's not that out there. Well, Julie, (laughs) I I can't thank you enough for your time again. Uh, Great conversation. Great work. Looking forward to the new cookbook because hello, cookies. Yeah. Cookies are my jam. Um, Just keep doing the great work that you're doing. Aw, thanks. A good industry to be in. Lots of good people. Well, this brings us to the end of another episode of What Were You Thinking? You can buy Dirty Food and her newest cookbook, Cookies I Have Loved, directly from our website, dinnerwithjulie.com or at your local independent bookstore. She's taken a very bold move to make Cookies I Have Loved available only through her website and through your independent bookstore. Way to go, Julie. You know I'm a huge fan. Go get your copy. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate a rate and review whatever platform you are using. You can check out my own books at my website, danagoldstein.ca. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking around for the extra few seconds. And here's your bonus content. Hey, Julie, tell me something not a lot of people know about you. Oh, geez. Oh, boy. Um, You know what? A lot of people don't know that uh, I, about 20 years ago, I lost 165 pounds. And so, um, and I had, I had to have surgery because my skin is not very elastic and I had to have surgery to have like all the extra skin removed. And so I'm covered with scars and I'm like all saggy and I've got nerve damage because the surgery didn't go well and oh. uh, they severed an artery and didn't cauterize it properly. So I went, got sent to my parents' house and almost bled to death. And so they had to send a, an ambulance and bring me back to the hospital, but I'd lost so much blood that they had to open me up without putting me back under. So my, so my nerves aren't lined up around my sort of abdomen and it drives me crazy if I get an itch cause I can't scratch it. It's very bizarre. So yeah, so I've got a lot of scars. I don't wear short sleeves cause I've got them all the way down my arms. And sometimes I, I wear it and people ask me, Oh, like, what's that scar from? And I always say shark attack. You're going to need a bigger boat. Shut off that engine.